Father, we thank you for your incredible grace towards us. Thank you that you are God with us. Thank you that you are working in the hearts of the young and the old throughout this borough. Thank you for working in our hearts even this morning. I just pray, continue to open our eyes to your wonders anew as we've been singing about this morning. Open our eyes to what you want to do and accomplish in us and through us for your glory, for the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Brilliant. What an amazing witness the uh, Sutton Schools Work team is being to the young people in our borough. Just encourage you to continue to pray for them. There are some, hopefully some prayer points on the uh, desk at the back. Please do pray for them and uh, get involved. This morning we're going to be talking about another incredible witness. We're going to be looking at the life of Stephen. Um, he's, he's known as the first Christian martyr. Uh, I want to focus on his life and the reason why he died in such an incredible way. He lived a dynamic life. He was a complete role model. He was a role model for me, obviously, my namesake. Growing up, I always loved the story of Stephen, particularly because he spelt his name correctly with a PH. Uh, very important. But uh, just, just the model of his passion, his boldness, and this dynamic life. So that's the theme of this morning, dynamic life. If you haven't been with us, uh, if you're new to us this morning, we've been going through, journeying through the book of Acts. We're looking at the first part before Christmas, before moving on to the second part next year. And we've come to a pivotal point in the history of the church, a pivotal point. If you do have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 6 and 7. We're not going to be reading it all out, don't worry. Uh, but just to catch you up, so far we have seen the church literally explode onto the scene in Jerusalem through ordinary people empowered by the Holy Spirit, this, this infant church was turning Jerusalem upside down, was impacting the, the, the religious elite, it was impacting the social outcasts, it was having a huge, huge ripple effect throughout Jerusalem. People were seeing great miracles and healings, plus the amazing witness of lives lived for one another. There was an amazing demonstration of power but also of great love as well. It was revolutionary. And this was despite being attacked from every angle. Every angle. As we said a couple of weeks ago, whenever the gospel is faithfully lived out, there will be great fruit, but there will also be great opposition. It's exactly the same today. You know, this good news of the gospel it is good news to those who respond. It's bad news for those who do not want to hear. And we shouldn't be surprised at that. They were being attacked from the outside as religious leaders were trying to shut them down with threats and repeated imprisonments, as we read about. We, we heard last week about being attacked from within their own ranks as Satan was seeking to, to bring corruption and sin into that church community through Ananias and Sapphira trying to bluff their way to holiness. God literally, very literally, stopped it dead in its tracks. 
So despite this opposition, the church was growing. It seems unstoppable because they had caught hold of this dynamic life in Jesus. And nothing, as we see, was going to deter them from proclaiming it or living it out. And we read this phrase just at the end of Acts chapter 5. Even after getting scourged, beaten up by the authorities, it says they left the council rejoicing because they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Just getting whipped, flogged, they left rejoicing that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. They had some guts, didn't they? But more importantly, they had the Spirit of God giving them boldness, giving them incredible grace, and giving them a joy that we see here. They came out rejoicing. Nothing was going to stop them. They had discovered what King David had discovered when he said in Psalm 63 that God's love is even better than life. Have you discovered God's love this morning? It's even better than life. They discovered a life worth living. And if it came to it, worth dying for as well as we'll see with Stephen. But before we look at his story, this incredible witness of his life and his death as well, I just want to ask the question, what are you living for this morning? What is shaping your life? What are you allowing to shape your life? What is, what is motivating you? What is the driving force that's moving you forward in your life? What gives you a sense of identity? This is who I am. Because the truth is, every one of us has been created to live for something. And as Christians, we believe that something is actually a someone, and his name is Jesus. We've been singing about it. We've been celebrating it. We've been created to enjoy his presence and know him forever. What an invitation. And we believe what it says in, the, in here that sin cuts us off from the presence of God. But Jesus willingly took that sin upon himself on the cross. He paid the penalty for that sin with his own life. He removed our guilt and our shame and this barrier that separated us from God. And he rose again, ascended up victorious in heaven, seated at the right hand of God so that we could once again know him and live for him and experience his power and his life in us. This is who we live for. Amen. <laughs> but so many people, for so many people, that something to live for is money, success, comfort, uh, food, sex, career, the approval of people. You can just kind of fill in the blanks, can't you? You can sum it up as simply living for yourself. What do you live for? Me. I came across this quote by a Grammy-nominated R&B star, Trey Songs. He says this, live your life for you. You do what you do for you. 
Because the moment you start to live your life for others, you'll lose yourself within that. Focus on what it is you want to have. Go get it. Sounds all great and motivational, doesn't it? How different to the words of Jesus, who says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit or lose his soul? And the truth is, it is only when we live our lives for God that we truly find ourselves. That's when we find ourselves. Because after all, he was the one who created us. He's the one who knows us better than we know ourselves. And sadly, building your life around anything other than Jesus, that's when we start to lose our life. That's when we've lost our life. We've lost our sense of purpose. We've lost our meaning in life. We, we lose our joy when we start living for ourselves because nothing else will satisfy. And people are finding that out all the time. All the time. According to the Prince's Trust, as many as three quarters of a million young people in the UK, feel they have nothing to live for. It's a lot of young people, got nothing to live for. Stephen had discovered a love in Jesus that was better than life itself. He discovered a dynamic life, and he wasn't prepared to keep it to himself. Just love that story of that schoolgirl. Discover Jesus. I don't want to keep it to myself. I want to tell my mom. I want to tell my dad. I want to tell everyone. Tim Keller tweeted this this week. He's a um, pastor and author in New York, I think it is. Being public about your faith simply means not hiding the wellspring in your life. We've been singing a lot about spring up a well in me this morning. Being public about your faith simply means not hiding this wellspring in your life, not hiding who you truly are in Christ. Stephen let who he really was just pour out of him. So we first come to him, let's get into his story. We first come across him at the beginning of Acts chapter 6 as one of the seven deacons, literally means servants, chosen to hand out food and provisions to the Hellenistic widows. The thing was, with rapid church growth, there came some, some tension as well. In this case, it was racial tension. We, we had Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jews complaining, hey, our widows are getting left out. Because the Aramaic-speaking Jews, probably there was a language barrier there. People were falling through the net. And things were getting a bit messy. Things were getting a bit heated. It's quite reassuring to know church is always messy. You know, we, we shouldn't be shocked that along with growth and blessing, also sometimes comes a lot of mess that requires God's wisdom for us to address. You know, we shouldn't be shocked. It's, it's usually growing pains. And this is what it was. There, was. there was some mess here. There was some tension that required some godly wisdom. And so the apostles anointed seven, seven guys of good repute, full of wisdom, and the Holy Spirit. And very helpfully, Greek-speaking as well. One of them was Stephen. The other was Philip, who we'll hear more about next week. So I just want to read from verse 
8 of chapter 6. Shook him up on the screen. There we go. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. It's interesting. Stephen's the first person, apart from the apostles, noted for, for doing signs and wonders. You know, performing signs and wonders is something for all of us. Amen? It's something that each of us can do. He was appointed to hand out food. And yet here we are performing great signs and wonders among the people. Because of that, opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freed men, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Again, isn't that comforting? It's not his wisdom, it's wisdom from the Spirit. Whenever we get into dialogue and conversation in our workplace or at the school gates, just pray, Holy Spirit, give me words, give me wisdom to know what to say. They couldn't stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke, so they thought, we're going to smear him. They secretly persuaded some men to say, hey, we've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place, the temple, and against the law. Two things the Jews were passionate about. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Just amazing, visible evidence of God's presence with him. Just sense maybe there's some people here this morning who need to know that whatever situation you're facing, even this week, maybe you're facing some conflict, maybe you're facing just a new challenge, you feel a bit thrown in at the deep end, know that you carry the presence of God with you wherever you go. You carry the presence of God with you in every situation. His face was glowing like the face of an angel, just again, just reminiscent of Moses coming down from Mount Sinai. Face glowing, I've encountered God, God's presence. Moving on to verse, uh, chapter 7. Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? To this he replied, brothers and, sis, uh, sorry, brothers and fathers, it was all guys at Sanhedrin, listen to me. You can almost hear him take this sort of deep breath. <gasps> Here we go. And he launches into uh, this incredible speech over the next 53 verses. We don't have time to read all of it. Please do read it at home. But what's happening is these guys are threatened and downright offended by, by basically God's power and wisdom at work in Stephen. So they vent, up, vent these charges and put him on trial. Put him on trial. And yet, as, we, as you read through this, this longest speech in Acts, you'll see that not only is Stephen full of love and full of grace for his accusers, he is also pinpoint sharp 
and accurate with the truth. And in that moment, it's like one of these, I don't know if you love these um, courtroom drama films. You can imagine the tension of that. In that moment of his defense, he turns the tables completely on their heads and puts his accusers in the dock. Suddenly, the accusers become the accused. And as I said, we don't have time to read through it. Please do. But I just want to draw out how he turns this on his head. They're accusing him as blaspheming Moses, the law, the temple, and ultimately God. So he goes, right, I'm going to give you a history lesson. He takes them right back to Abraham. He, he talks about Joseph He goes through Moses' story in great detail. He gives them a potted history lesson and basically points out that on every turn, they have systematically missed the vital point that all their history actually points to Jesus. Actually points to Jesus, that they were the real blasphemers. He points out, look, your forefathers rejected Moses, sorry, rejected Joseph first off, rejected Moses the first time as well. They rejected God himself by building a golden calf in the wilderness. When they moved and eventually claimed the promised land, they rejected God again by worshiping foreign gods, foreign idols. Finally, when the promised Messiah came, they rejected him too. More than that, they murdered him. Basically, he was saying, who is actually the guilty party here? He moves on to the law, their precious law. He explains how actually they had turned the law into just a pile of man-made rituals, so concentrated with looking at the outside holiness, outside rituals like circumcision, where God had always been looking at the heart. They totally missed that. They missed the point that the law was, was meant to point them to their need of a savior. Now, it was only Jesus who truly fulfilled the law. They missed that. He turns his attention to the, their beloved temple. He reminds them that even before their temple was built, God met with Abraham. Not even in a different city, but a different country. What's now modern-day Iraq? Met with Moses on a mountain. Met with them in a tent, the tabernacle. Even when they were in the promised land, they still met in a tabernacle until Solomon finally built that first temple. And even then, Solomon was wise enough to say, the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built And Stephen reminds them of Isaiah's words. You know, he very wisely uses Isaiah. They loved Isaiah. If you want to catch their Jewish leader's attention, quote Isaiah. It's what Jesus did when he announced his ministry. He says, listen, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? He's he's saying, listen, God is so much bigger So much bigger than their precious temple. You cannot put God in a temple-shaped box, a box of, of, of bricks and mortar. 
You know, again, like the law, the temple was meant to point to something so much greater, so much better, a living temple with Jesus as the cornerstone. It's what Jesus said when he said, listen, this temple's going to be pulled down in three days. It'll be raised up again. He was talking about his body, himself. And as his spiritual body, he's building us, his church, into the dwelling place of God by his spirit, a place not of stone, but in the hearts of men and women. In other words, as you read through those verses, just filled with wisdom and truth, he was pointing out that they had built their entire lives, in fact, their, their entire identity on something that was missing the vital core, Jesus. Their understanding of history, their whole understanding of their story was completely warped because it lacked Jesus. Challenging thing for us is the same is true for us. The same is true for us if we build our lives without Jesus at the center, without him shaping our identity, without him being the very reason and purpose for our lives. Really hard truth he was giving them, wasn't he? Really hard truth. But, but his heart was for them to repent. He wasn't just hurling accusations back at them. Well, I'm just getting a bit defensive here. No, his heart, he was full of grace. His heart was for, for them to repent. These weren't the, the words of, a, of an angry young preacher. He was simply not willing to fudge the truth to save his skin. As he goes on, you know, that's the moment I would have, if I was there, I'd have tapped him on the shoulder. He said, okay, you've said your piece. Back down now. Tensions are rising. It's getting a little bit dodgy here. Kind of, you know, you've, you've made it clear. Time to go. This is what he says. He carries on, verse 51. You stiff-necked people. In other words, you're so refusing to turn. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. They were looking at the outside. God was looking at the hearts. You were just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. John the Baptist is one of them. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. He's saying just what Peter had said to the Jews beforehand. You who have received the law that was given through the angels but have not obeyed it. How did that go down? When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. I don't know. I don't think anyone's gnashed their teeth at me. I don't know what that sounds like. But anyway, it doesn't sound nice, does it? They gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he says, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragging him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. We'll be hearing a lot more about him 
next year in part two. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. The Bible often uses that term falling asleep for death of saints because they're going to be resurrected with Christ. So to use a famous Jack Nicholson quote, they couldn't handle the truth. They couldn't handle the truth. I don't know if you saw this week, Oxford Dictionaries has declared the word for the year is post-truth. 2016's word for the year for Oxford Dictionary, uh, post-truth. Basically, it is uh, relating to or donating circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Basically, this rise in this word is down to, they say, the EU referendum and particularly the US presidential election Throughout these campaigns, this use of post-truth has has risen by 2,000%. As people are turning to social media uh, and, and different news outlets and different feeds to get their news, the Oxford Dictionary said this, In an era of post-truth politics, it's easy to cherry-pick data and come to whatever conclusion you desire. In other words... The truth itself has become irrelevant because I've already made up my mind. I've already made up my mind. You know, with the presidential election, you know, it's been a journey, hasn't it? People, all these truths were coming out. People were like, la, 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 don't care, don't care. I've made up my mind. I don't care. I don't know who to believe anyway. I'm just going with my gut. I'm going with my emotions. I've already made my mind up. The fact is, post-truth was being demonstrated nearly 2,000 years before it became word of the year. Screaming and yelling as they picked up their stones, they cast their verdict. Stephen was guilty. We don't want to hear the truth. We don't want to hear any more. You're guilty. Have a stone. Post-truth. And yet, it was God who was passing the verdict on them. How amazing it must have been for Stephen in the shock and the pain of what he was going through to look up and see the true judge of all the earth standing sovereign, giving him the grace to forgive and welcoming him home. You know, it's interesting. Jesus is usually referred to as seated at the right hand of God. I don't know if there's anything specific about him standing. I like to think he's, he's standing to welcome Stephen home. Say, well done. Good and faithful servant. Amazing. They thought they were the judges. Jesus is the true judge. And God was casting the true verdict on them. You know, growing up, I I loved the fact that my name meant crown. I used to use that a lot to uh, try and boss my older brother and sister around. 
didn't work. I'm like, I'm the one with the crown, you obey me. Fat chance. What I didn't realize is the New Testament actually uses two words for crown. One for the sort of regal, inherited crown, royal blood. That's the word we get diadem from. It's the regal crown. And the other one means wreath or a victor's crown. That's the word we get Stephen from. It's like the the crown or reward for a race well run, for persevering, for finishing well. It's the word that's used in Revelation 2.10 when Jesus says, the church in Smyrna I think it is, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown, the Stephanos of life. Stephen received the Stephanos of life. The crown of life. It's just amazing. In his serving, his humble serving of widows, to his his bold, spirit-empowered preaching with signs and wonders, to to his faithfulness even to death, he just shone this wellspring of life all the time. He lived a life worth living and received the crown. And and the truth is, he was just following his Savior, wasn't he? Just following Jesus. There's so many parallels. You know, like Jesus, he faced a trumped-up charge, accused of blasphemy. Like Jesus, he was led out of the city to be crucified. Well, not crucified, to be executed. Crucifixion had been banned. He was stoned. It It was more of a mob killing, really. Like Jesus, he forgave, using the same phrases as well, receive my spirit and do not hold this sin against them. He was following his savior. What a witness. You know, the Greek word for witness is martus. It's where we actually get our word martyr from. You know, witness is is a martyr. Because something worth living for is also worth dying for. Or to use Martin Luther King's famous words, the man who has nothing to die for has nothing to live for. And in his witness, in his death, Stephen sowed incredible seeds of the gospel. I mean, particularly in this young man, Saul, eventually to become the great apostle Paul. I mean, just think about it. What must that do to a man to watch someone die with such peace in their spirit and love in their heart? What must that do to someone? He never forgot that day. He never forgot that day watching Stephen, full of forgiveness and grace, face glowing like an angel, assurance of hope of a life to come. He recalls it in Acts 22, actually, Paul does. Shook him to the core. And ultimately, Paul became one of the greatest champions of the gospel to the Gentiles. He too would come to understand what it meant to to live for something worth dying for. He says to the church in Philippi later on, this is Paul, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Why? Because I get to be with him. I get to be with Christ. Amazing fruit. As I said, it was the pivotal moments in church history. 
Jerusalem had rejected Jesus. They rejected Stephen's witness. Yes, thousands had come to receive Jesus as their Lord. As I said, both Jews and non-Jews, the religious elite and social outcasts. But so many more needed to hear the gospel. They needed to hear the good news. It was time for the gospel to spread beyond the walls of Jerusalem. And Stephen's death triggered a massive persecution against the church that scattered the church to Judea, to Samaria, ultimately to the ends of the earth. I always think of it like a dandelion head. I don't know if anyone suffers dandelions in their garden. They can be a real pest, can't they? Imagine a dandelion head packed with seeds. Persecution came like a wind that blew these potent seeds far and wide. And as we'll see more next week, as we touch into Acts chapter 8, these seeds quickly germinate. Why? Because as they were scattered, they carried on revealing this wellspring of their life. They carried on talking about Jesus, talking about the gospel as they went. Ultimately, it was the persecution that helped them to fulfill the Great Commission, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Amazing sovereignty of God. Amazing sovereignty of God. I'm just going to wrap up very briefly by saying... The life Jesus calls you to today is a dynamic life. He gives us a cause to live for. He gives us the power to enable us to live it. He gives us his grace. It's a life worth living. And he might not call us to die for him, but as is often said, he does call us to live for him, sacrificially, to die to ourselves and to live for him. As Paul says, for me to live is Christ. Today is Release International's day of prayer for the persecuted church. It's kind of apt, isn't it, really, what we've been looking at today. Around the world, as we know, we probably just know the tip of the iceberg as well. Thousands of people are being faithful to God, even to death, because they found a love that is better than life itself. Have you? Have you? We're going to just pray for some people afterwards. If the band could come back, I just think it'll be good. Let's just all stand if you're able. I'd love to just pray for our brothers and sisters who are facing persecution. I'd also like to pray for ourselves as well, that we too will continue to bear masses of fruit. If you don't know Jesus here this morning, if your life is not centered around him, please make that decision today to respond to that good news. Let's just pray. Father, I just want to thank you for the witness of Stephen. I want to thank you for the incredible role model that he is still to us. And yet he was just following the role model that Jesus left for us. Father, I pray for our Brothers and sisters, in countries that are so persecuted, who live daily with death on their doorstep and in their homes. Lord, God of all comfort, we pray, will you comfort those who mourn? But Lord, I also pray that you will continue to give them grace and boldness 
that their continued witness will bear masses of fruit. Lord, it's, it's amazing to hear so many people responding to your good news, responding to Jesus in these incredibly difficult times. We pray, continue to give them the power to witness with grace, even till death. And I pray for ourselves, Lord. It kind of puts our, our stresses and our troubles in perspective. But I pray for us that we too will make Jesus the center of our story. That we will not be tempted to build our lives around anything less than you. I pray, Lord, give us the boldness not to hide the wellspring of our life but to continue to be shining lights, Lord, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our homes. Not hide who we truly are in you. We thank you that the same spirit who was in Stephen, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, lives in us. We pray for ongoing boldness not to fudge the truth, to save our skin, but to glorify you in all that we say and do. For your name we ask. Amen.